But that's what really starts it is friendships with godly Christians with whom I share a complete commitment to the gospel and to the Bible and even to Reformed theology, but where we have totally different experiences in life. You're listening to As in Heaven, a Christian conversation on race and justice. This episode is part one in a two-part episode series led by Dr. Ligon Duncan on the history of black people in America. Dr. Duncan starts at the very beginning, 1619, the onset of chattel slavery, and takes us all the way to the Civil War. Understanding these historical realities and how they still play a part in our cultural moment will enable us to have greater empathy for our black brothers and sisters. Jim Davis is your host. Justin Holcomb is the guest co-host on this episode. Mike Graham and myself, Matt Kenyon, are the producers of As in Heaven. And without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Ligon Duncan. All right. Welcome to As in Heaven Season 2. My name's Jim. I am joined by Dr. Justin Holcomb, and we have the pleasure today of getting to talk with Dr. Ligon Duncan, um, who it would it would take too much of the episode to really dive into uh, your resume, things that you have done. But uh, our, our connection point, the three of us, you were chancellor of mine and Justin's alma mater, uh, Reform Theological Seminary. You do a tremendous amount of writing and speaking. You helped found T4G. You're extremely involved with the Gospel Coalition. You come to us uh, from Jackson at this point, I, I presume. That's where you live. Uh, Mississippi is another touch point we had. That's where we met when I was uh, in Oxford, Mississippi, pastoring. We are just so thankful um, for for your voice in a lot of areas, and specifically this one. Um, so thank you for your time today. I'm delighted to be here with both of you gentlemen. You can divide the race conversation into three um, three parts. And, and it's, it's not, we're not, it's a, maybe a little bit of, a, of an overgeneralization or a minimalization, but, but really you have this Jamestown to the Civil War period, you have the Civil War to um, Civil Rights Movement period, and then the Civil Rights up until today. So you are going to join us for two of those episodes. This first one is where we're focusing today, kind of Jamestown up until the Civil War. Um, you're going to help join us for the second one, and then Colin Hansen is going to join us for the, the Civil Rights, and Mike Aitchison, who you know, uh, Civil Rights up until today. So uh, yeah, we can just dive in with question one. First question is really uh, starting at the beginning of what became chattel slavery in the U.S. How did this begin? Well, I think it's helpful for people to remember that um, chattel slavery uh, occurred in a world that was filled with servitude. And I, I actually think that's key to how people could have been unsurprised and unhorrified uh, by chattel slavery, because they occupied a world that was filled with various forms of servitude. So all over Europe, there would have been everything from indentured servants uh, to, to permanent servitude. Uh, and very often that servitude was, was racially tinged uh, with certain groups feeling themselves superior to other groups, English feeling themselves superior to Irish. Uh, upper, you know, up, the class system in Europe is another part of the thinking that we've got to get into our minds, a very stratified class system so that an upper class Scot 
wouldn't have hesitated uh, to reduce uh, to servitude uh, uh, Highlanders from, you know, probably from Gallic backgrounds of, uh, of a different socioeconomic stratum. So you have a world in Europe that is filled with servitude. And I, I think that is why chattel slavery is able to get a foothold without immediately shocking people uh, as to what is going on. The other thing is it's happening, uh, you know, it's happening offsite. You know, the, the, the people that are beginning to, to bring chattel slavery into the English-speaking world, you know, the, Span- the Spaniards and the Portuguese are already involved in this. When, when it becomes big industry in the English-speaking world, um, it's happening. It's it's not happening in Britain. You know, it's it's British captains and sailors going to Africa, and uh, and then and then you know going to uh, the colonies or to uh, what's now what we call Central America and the Caribbean or to South America. And a lot of it is out of the public mind and eye. I mean, that, that's why, if I can scroll forward, because we're not even here in our history, when John Newton and William Wilberforce get involved in the battle first against the slave trade and then against slavery itself, Newton is brought in for star testimony before the House of Commons just to tell people what happens on a slave ship. So what what that lets you know is there is a lot of ignorance, (laughs) you know, in the general population that allows this thing to gain steam. And I've also I mean, I I have I've tried to wrestle how how could this have happened? How how could how could people have done this? And I, I, I see actually several components. One is the fact that Europe in the in the 16th century is a world of servitude. And there was not, in a lot of people's minds, a sharp distinction between the kinds of servitudes that existed in Europe and the kind of stuff that was being done to Africans. I think the second thing is Europeans, when they encountered Africans, immediately felt superior. Uh, they felt technologically superior. They, they felt sociologically superior. Uh, they were militarily superior. And... Uh, and, and I think that helps explain how chattel slavery happens. I, I also think the world of Aristotle and, and the classics has a, has a big role to play because um, I, I see you smiling, Justin. You've got things to, to add in this area, I can tell. Uh, I, I think there was a, I think that fed into the sort of the class structure thinking. Uh, and there was sort of a hierarchy. Long before Darwin, there was already this sort of hierarchy of peoples thing that goes back to the classical world and to Aristotle. And I think that helped intelligent, otherwise moral people justify this. And then let's, let's face it, the bottom line of this, my friends, is economic. This is all about money. It's, it's all, there's a lot of money to be made in this. And it's, it's not only the money of the people that are transporting, the, but the money of the people that they're being transported to become the slaves of. And when you put those four things together, I think that, you know, and, and look, there are historians of slavery, Jim, that you can talk to that'll know a whole lot more than me. But as, a, as, as an amateur historian of this subject, as I've tried to figure out how in the world did this happen, those are four things that occur to me that explain how this thing gets going and how people that are 
Uh, you know, that the, the, they they have at least a nominal affirmation of the gospel. They have a national church that's Christian. They have a Christian ethical system. They have all the commandments that you and I have. How do they get there? I think those four things are a big part of it. Well, I was smiling because for years I've taught Christian thought and philosophy, and many people reading the classics think that it's all about, you know, some abstract realm of metaphysics. And here you are referring to chattel slavery and Aristotle and the influence. And because when students start reading the classics, they start noticing implications like this. I just love the connection there. Um, So one, one statement we often hear is that it was Africans who were selling other Africans into slavery. So how do you as a historian process that statement help help us uh, novices of history kind of understand that statement. Well, you know, the, as as you will no doubt be teaching your students, uh, Justin, the therefore is always the trick in a statement like that. You know, when somebody makes a statement like that, what's their therefore? You know, what what deduction are they drawing from that statement? African nations have been very frank, especially in the last fifty to seventy five years, in reckoning with the fact that you just. Uh, mentioned. If you go to Benin, uh, they are very, very clear about their culpability in facilitating the transatlantic slave trade. And so, of course, it's true that Africans were selling other Africans into slavery. But obviously, when th- that was a that was part of warfare and tribal conquest in Africa, and there was obviously not. Um, you know, African prejudice against Africans as Africans. You know, there may have been tribal prejudices and and such. And so the Europeans certainly took advantage of that reality. And no doubt that was something in the back of their mind that they allowed to justify their own activity in the slave trade. Well, after all, it's Africans selling us Africans. You know, they're, you know, the the tribal tribal conquerors are selling us the, the, the tribal conquerees, you know, and so, you know, we're justified in participating in this. But that doesn't somehow justify what, what happens, one, when white Europeans de- decide that they are superior to Africans. Uh, and, and then what that makes them, how that makes them relate in this, I mean, that's one of the uniquenesses of chattel slavery is that white supremacy or North European supremacy or whatever you want to call it, it just gets woven in at the very basis of our participation in the transatlantic slave trade. And, and mentioning the fact that Africans were selling Africans is absolutely irrelevant to that. Um, I mean, it, that's important to understand the history of how, you know, of how this thing gained traction. And yes, you had collusion and cooperation uh, from African princes and tribal leaders who had their own agenda going on. Uh, But their motives were very, very different than their European partners. And the European partners' attitudes towards all Africans was very different than Africans, you know, inter-African opinions of one another. And you you mentioned earlier the economics of it. That's clearly uh, driven by economics for the African uh, countries who are involved in this. And and you mentioned the tribal dimension. I was ordained and have served in Africa and Sudan, and there's three tribes there, the, the Mahdi, Acholi, and the Dinkas. And when I preach on the Good Samaritan, I use the tribal distinctions. And when I preach about Jesus loves the Dinkas as much as the Acholi— uh, there's, that's offensive 
It's offensive. And so I don't want people to hear uh, you referring to the tribal identity and, and being able to dismiss it. That's That was a huge piece of kind of African culture and, and history there, too. Absolutely. And, and so, look, that that is the case in so many cultures, isn't it, Justin? You know, we, we could go to Scotland and and the, the, the word that uh, Gallic Highland Scots use for non-Gallic speakers is Sassanich. And, uh, and it literally means Saxon speaker. Uh, and of course, there are two types of people in the world, Justin. They're Gales and Sassanich. All the rest of us are Sassanich. So it's like Jews and Gentiles, you know. So these sorts of things aren't just an African thing for primitive peoples. You can find this kind of stuff all over history and and culture. And so you're absolutely right. This is not something for us to say by way of belittling African people. It's an important historical fact that we need to be aware of. And by the way, we can also say the the Muslim culture does not come off looking good in this area either, because there is a there is a horrific Muslim slave trade. So if there, you know if you if you have this idea out there somewhere where Islam is has you know their hands are clean on this, oh no, there isn't there's a horrific uh, Islamic slave trade in Africa as well. And and Africans, I think, have disproportionately suffered in this area in comparison to other cultures. Well, you mentioned John Newton as bringing, being brought in as a witness about what was happening on slave ships. So can you tell us some of the conditions that you know, that were happening on slave ships as they crossed the Atlantic. Well, by the way, for, for somebody, if you want to read something that is both spiritually edifying uh, and and also will will just sober you on this issue, um, read the, the, the relatively new biography of, of, um, of John Newton called From Disgrace to Amazing Grace. From Disgrace to amazing grace. And I'm trying to think the, the the British politician who wrote it. Do you remember, Justin? I think it's like maybe Jonathan Aiken or something like this. Um, he was, interestingly, he, like Chuck Colson, he was uh, in power in the uh, conservative administration of John Major, and there was a scandal, and he ended up in prison, and he was converted in prison. And when he came out, one of the things that he did is he wrote this biography of of uh, Newton, where he get, has a lot of Wilberforce material too, but he's he he is more frank in discussing what happened on those slave trip ships and um, and uh, and 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 Newton's culpability than many of the older Newton biographies that tend to sort of paper that over. You know, there were there were some things. Justin, that you just didn't say about people that they had done and you didn't talk about certain things in public. And I, I, I remember really having my breath taken away and realizing how um, em, emphatically serious John Newton was when he said the words that saved a wretch like me. I, I, I think that, that, that Newton is assessing the person that he was. That's not some sort of spiritualized, you know, hyperbole. That's an accurate reflection of uh, his heart and soul and his actions in life. And so, you know, it, you know everything, um, you know, slaves were typically packed on, on, the, on the lower decks uh, in, in chains in such a way that they could not move. 
they would lie in in the, the in it, they would defecate and urinate and lie in the the effects of their body as they cross the middle passage. Um, disease, as you can imagine, would run through uh, the decks in that kind of setting. Um, you know, you were you, you were. It was amazing if you survived the voyage in the first place. Um, and uh, in that context, people were vulnerable to the worst kinds of abuses, sexual abuse and everything else that you can imagine that a wicked human heart can do happened uh, to these to these people on the middle passage. And uh, and Newton just I mean, he lays it out. He, he says this is what it was like. This is a man that was involved in the slave trade for many years, made many trips down the slave coast all the way down the the west coast of Africa, all the way down to the Cape, and then back up again um, many times. Um, and so he knew what he was talking about. And uh, in in very clear, um, unflattering terms described what happened. And so I, I would really encourage people to, to read that. You know, I, I think our kind of people, the kind of people that are listening to this podcast will trust John Newton they know that John Newton isn't some agent of Marxism and political correctness and uh, all kinds of secular wickedness. This is a godly gospel man who believes his Bible, was dramatically and truly converted, and spent his life sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, but who was also emphatically with his whole soul set against the slave trade and slavery itself and along with Wilberforce provided the the moral support necessary to see the end of that in the British Empire. Well, another statement that I hear is that slavery was basically a Southern thing, that the Civil War eradicated. Um, could you speak to the impact slavery had on the early colonies and, and the establishment of the United States as a whole? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, sadly, slavery permeated every aspect of American life in the North and in the South from the earliest days. Before there were pilgrims in Massachusetts, there were slaves in Virginia. And, uh, and, you, and you have to remember that um, th- there were, you know, Connecticut was a major slaving state, uh, that, that's one reason if you've heard the story of Amistad, the, the captain tries to get the ship to Connecticut because he, he thinks they're going to be favorable treatment because Connecticut is a slave state. And, uh, and so he, he, he wants to get them to Connecticut when all the stuff is going on. So, no, the, sadly, the, the reality of slavery was a nationwide reality. Now, it is certainly true that by the time of the American Civil War, support for slavery in the northern uh, states was was you know uh, was at an all time low, and and then it, that became part of the cause in the in the Civil War, and so even states like New York, which would have been sympathetic to the slave trade because it was part. I mean, that's what we called New York the Empire State, and part of the empire is. New York people were in part they they were financing and facilitating and shipping uh, in, in the slave trade. And, um, so every part of the United States is impacted by this. And let me say every part of the United States is impacted by the attitudes that underlie slavery. So there's a, in the Spielberg version of the, of the, of the Abraham Lincoln movie that was done just a few years ago, there's this poignant scene, uh, 
where uh, a, uh, a black woman who's at the White House is asking Abraham Lincoln if he thinks this is finally going to mean social equality for, um, you're talking about the Emancipation Proclamation, is this finally going to mean social equality? And the, the script has Abraham Lincoln say something like, I don't know. And that's very, very telling because Lincoln himself was not committed to social equality of black people. And so even even in emancipation causes in the northern United States, you have people that don't believe in black social equality. So we we have to remember that even in the abolitionist movement, uh, there are not necessarily the same attitudes that we have today about the the equal dignity of every human being creating the image of God, no matter what they're colored, no matter what country they're from, no matter what religion they're from, those things had not worked out. And part of that is because white supremacy and the economic motives impacted everybody in, in the United States, not just people in the South. So this wasn't just a Southern problem. This was, it's an American problem. And um, and certainly the, the people that work to abolish slavery, slavery should be lauded for those for those efforts. And I don't mean to uh, morally equivocate between them and and those who were trying to buttress the slave trade or or the or the condition of slavery itself. But underlying even a lot of the abolitionist movement were attitudes that as Christians we would call into question and criticize today. And uh, again, that's not just a Southern thing. That's an, uh, that's an every, uh, let, you know, if, you, if you've read the Bibi Anyabwile's book, Faithful Preachers, you know, Lemuel Haynes faces this in, in the Northern United States as, a, as an African American New England Puritan. He faces these kinds of discriminatory uh, attitudes. And um, uh, uh, when, um, when uh, Francis Grimke is in Washington, D.C., he's, he's escaped the slaveholding American South. He's gone to Princeton. Uh, he's, he, you know, he's been educated by the, the great Princetonians of the 19th century, and he's ministering in Washington, D.C., the District of Columbia, just blocks from the, from the Capitol building. He's still encountering uh, racist attitudes in the district, which, you know, at that time, that, that, that would have been in sort of the high watermark of the, of the ideal of the, of the union that was against slavery and for equality for all. And yet he's encountering discrimination in, you know, every aspect of life. And in fact, he's involved in starting the NAACP, uh, Presbyterian minister, um, and his brother. So why is that? Because from the beginning, the attitudes that allowed slavery to happen were commonly shared attitudes by everyone. Well, I love how you pointed out that slaves preceded pilgrims, because a lot of people don't realize that the, the I want to say this right, because it's not the first European colony, the first first European uh, or settlement, but the first settlement that lasted, Jamestown, was completely going bankrupt. And the only reason that it worked was because they began to bring in, I believe, the Portuguese slave trade. Um, well, so there is something actually that I, I was not familiar with until relatively recent, recently, something called slave codes. Can you, um, can you explain what they are and give a few examples? Well, I, just w- one one quick example of this is immediately you have to start dealing with the question of what happens if a slave converts. And uh, obvi- masters were not interested in losing their economic rights or their property rights in slaves. 
And so codes are written that make it clear that uh, conversion does not impact their um, their economic and property um, relation to their masters. Codes are written on what, what happens if a slave uh, marries a free woman. Uh, and, and everything is designed. And by the way, this, it's completely opposite. A lot of times people will say, well, the Bible teaches slavery. Well, <laughs> the, there are slave codes in the Mosaic law. But unlike marriage, which is presented as a positive good in Genesis chapter 2, slavery is never presented as a positive good or the way things that were meant to be in the original created order. And if you look at the slave codes in the Mosaic Law, they actually mitigate the plight of those who are in slavery. By the way, it's not chattel slavery that's being talked about in the Mosaic codes for one thing. So that's a, that's, you know, that's a false equivocation. If you say, well, the Bible teaches slavery, therefore chattel slavery, the kind of slavery that's going on in the ancient Near Eastern world is a different kind of thing than chattel slavery. But the, the Mosaic codes begin by mitigating uh, some of the, and, and by putting responsibilities on the masters, the slave codes are all designed in the United States to privilege the master's power. Uh, and and to make sure that that the slave doesn't have a chance for freedom, doesn't have a chance to do things. You know, there, there are things like uh, the, the slave codes in the early 18th century. Uh, no, in the early 19th century, the early 1800s, will start denying, uh, for instance, uh, the the right of slaves to learn to read. Uh, why? Because the fear is if they learn to read, they'll rebel because they'll be able to communicate better in written form. And, and therefore, it's against the law now to teach a slave to read, uh, et cetera. So the slave codes govern everything from robbing slaves of family rights. Um, you know, so if, if uh, the, the progeny of slaves don't belong to the mother and father, they can be sold off to another uh, master. Husbands and wives can be separated. You know, all sorts of things that are clearly against the Mosaic Code, Um are, are being done and they're being blessed by these particular slave codes. And you'll find, you'll, you'll find that there, you know, Virginia has them, South Carolina has them, Maryland has them, all the varying states will have these kinds of slave codes. By the way, one important thing about this, Jim, is when, when you run into people who say, well, I don't believe in systemic racism. One thing that systemic racism means is racism that has been woven into the very codes of law that govern our society. Well, here is an example of how slavery was woven into the very law that governs our society. And, um, and that's systemic. So, it, you know, it, th- th- these are really good things to remind people. This, this is actually how we treated people. We wove injustice into the laws of the states of the United States of America. Uh, you mentioned how the Bible, you know, was what the Bible says about chattel slavery. How was the Bible misused um, during this time to support slavery? I mean, this this is something that I've wrestled with. You know, it's it's one of those how how could you know how could my guys, you know, my heroes, how how could they? have misused the Bible. Now, the good, you know, the good news about this is, um, it is that um, not all Christians and not all Reformed Protestant Christians uh, caved in on this particular issue. Um, and especially in Britain, 
you know, British Baptists, Scottish Presbyterians, uh, they thought the 19th century American Reformed apologists for slavery were nuts. And, and even in the United States, outside of the world of the Quakers, we know the Quakers had a good long track record of being anti-slavery. But even outside of the world of the, of the Quakers, you had people like the, the descendants of the Scottish Covenanters that had come to the United States. Today, they exist in a little denomination called the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America. Well, Alexander MacLeod, one of those early covenanting ministers in the United States, late 1700s, early 1800s, writes a brilliant theological critique of slavery. So if you want to see an American, uh, you know, or a person who was here in America speaking from a Reformed Protestant position against slavery, Alexander MacLeod uh, is, is your guy. But what, what, what did people like Thornwell and Dabney and Palmer and, and others, um, and, and, you know, most of these guys, let's face it, were in the American South. Um, how, how did they misuse the Bible? Well, I think one thing that they did, and, and this, by the way, I think is a warning to all of us, is they, they assumed uh, they, they did not realize the way their context impacted the way they read Scripture. They, they moved from their context and circumstances to text and, and never questioned the way the context was skewing the way, the way, the way they read the Bible. And, uh, and, and then they ended up doing precisely what Jesus criticizes the Pharisees for doing, uh, and and that is that you know they they are concerned for very small things while they ignore the weightier matters of the law. So it's very easy for and and let me say here's the other thing that I think happens with Southern interpreters and I'm, I'm picking on my own people here because I'm a I'm a ninth generation South Carolinian. My my family was in the the colony of South Carolina before it was a colony, uh, and um, so the, I'm this, these are my people. Um, I, I think they saw so many of the voices of um, the anti-slavery movement as coming from what they would have identified a liberal secular Jacobinism, you know, sort of the, the, the impetus of the, of the French Revolution and all that kind of stuff flowing out of the Enlightenment. And they pulled back into what they thought was the position of fidelity to the Bible. And they thought that they could simply say, well, Moses has slave codes, uh, there must be nothing wrong with slavery. Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon. He, Paul doesn't call for the abolition of slavery, so therefore there must be nothing wrong with slavery. And that's a bad way to read the Bible. Uh, it's, it's, it's reading the Bible without paying attention to the context of those things. For instance, with Paul, Paul blows up chattel slavery in one sentence when he tells Philemon to receive Onesimus as a brother. I mean, that, that, that is a game-changer sentence. You know, furthermore, the kind of slavery that exists in the Greco-Roman world in the Mediterranean is not the same kind of slavery that is existing with chattel slavery. So it's, it's, it's smart people, otherwise moral people, not thinking about how is what is happening in my culture different from what's happening in the Bible? And am I using something in the Bible that's very different and drawing wrong deductions about how I ought to be 
acting in this culture. And let's face it, to oppose slavery in the American South was to, uh, to court social ostracism, to, to be completely marginalized from the, the influential places of culture. And, and by the way, that's just a reminder to me that all of us have those same kind of temptations today. You know, if we believe X, the culture is going to think that we have three heads, you know, and, and, I, and I don't want to be, I, I don't want to lose my ability to have influence in, in the culture. And, and my forebears just completely blew it in this area. And I think that's the big way, Jim, is they just allowed culture to, um, to keep them from seeing clearly what, what Scripture says and what it doesn't say. In Exodus 21, 16, it says it really clearly. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Now, again, I'm just highlighting the point that the same thing they do is the same thing we all do. That's the whole point is that we, we can put on blinders for our bias to help us not see what is clearly stated in Scripture. Absolutely true. And by the way, Paul glosses that very passage in his writings in the New Testament. And the, it's often translated kidnappers. And so you, you, you miss it. But it's actually, he's talking about man stealing. He's talking about exactly that passage that you're talking about. And it's right there in the New Testament. Uh, and that should have been it right there. You know, a, a clear-minded Thornwall or Dabney or Palmer should have said, okay, that's what we're doing is completely wrong. We've got to scrap the whole thing, but you're economically and culturally interested in the system. So let's, we, we're going to move to the abolition movement. What were some of the main people and movements prior to the Civil War that gave momentum to the abolitionist movement? Well, uh, look, for one thing, we, we should not um, ignore voices from uh, enslaved Africans themselves and, and from freed uh, Africans. You know, and I, uh, one of the people that I was interested uh, or introduced to just a few years ago was Alauda Equiana, uh, who, I mean, I started reading him and I said, man, this guy is my brother. Theologically, this guy has big God theology. Uh, he's got a doctrine. You, you know how, uh, Justin, you'll run into people who will who will say, oh, but um, in God's providence, the Africans that were brought as slaves to America were in so much better shape than the poor yeah. Africans. You know, well, this guy has a big doctrine of God's providence, and he does appreciate how God can use even awful things, a.k.a. Genesis 50, 20, and use them for good. But that doesn't excuse the wickedness. Okay, that's you know that's the failure that people make in that area. So, guys, and, and by the way, you can get his little book. In there are numerous editions of his little. It, it's it's his own testimony to his experience. Alauda Equiana. He he had he was given sort of an a Latinized name, Gustava Vasa, but his African name was Alauda Equiana. And from his time to Phyllis Wheatley to I mean, there's a there's a wonderful tradition of godly, big God, Protestant um, slaves and freed slaves that give great impetus uh, and, and speak with great um, moral and biblical force to the issue at hand. I've already mentioned the Quakers. The Quakers were uh, opposed to slavery uh, from the 18th century on and were uh, a part of this 
I've, I've mentioned Alexander McLeod and the Covenanters. They were some of the reformed voices that were strongly um, opposed to this. You know, before the war, uh, before the, the American Civil War, uh, you know, the, 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 the book that caught everybody's attention was, uh, was Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe was a part of a long line of uh, people that opposed slavery. By the way, Benjamin Breckinridge Warfield's family uh, was was involved in the anti-slavery uh, campaign. I've, I, you know, I, I had always wondered, Justin, what it was that I, you know. If you read Ned Stonehouse's biography of J. Gresham Machen, you know that 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 Machen had this tremendous tension and falling out with Warfield. Well, you know, now I come to find out, oh, Machen was a racist and (laughs) he didn't like the fact that Warfield wasn't. Well, Warfield's family had been involved in the, in the abolition movement for years. He was very, very proud of that fact. And by the way, he conducted, I mean, he, he comes across, if you, if you read his involvement at Princeton, he comes across like a boss. I mean, that guy, he, he is way ahead of his time in terms of his addressing of these issues. Well, it's, he comes from a, a line of abolitionists. So it's just not true that only the, you know, the sort of the secular, anti-Christian, uh, sort of romantic, uh, you know, 19th century movement folks were the ones that were uh, against slavery. You can find some wonderful Orthodox Christians from a variety of denominational traditions and solid Protestants that were that were working hard against the slave trade and then against slavery and for abolition. I think we got our quote of the episode. I think it was just to get hear you clearly. BB Warfield is a boss. <laughs> I love it. It's a T-shirt somewhere. Okay, it's a meme being ready to be made on that one. <laughs> They're T-shirts to be printed, Justin. Oh boy. So um, this is. I love this because this is like. Um, this is like I feel like I feel like I'm having like a good dinner party where I'm just peppering an expert with questions left and right, but I don't want to stop. So, um, another question: how How did both slavery and segregation in free states affect the development of both black and white churches and denominations? Well, uh, you know, v- variously, but here here's the deal, especially after the American Civil War, and I know that's supposed to be for next episode, but um, especially after the American Civil War, whereas slaves had been allowed a limited type of participation in the life of dominantly white and free uh, churches, um, now there was actually even more reticence to allow that. You know, so every once in a while, I hear somebody talk about how terrible it is that you know that that uh, that uh, freed African Americans went off and started their own denomination. Well, the reason there is a black church is because of the white supremacy of white churches. That's you know, and that's something that even before the American Civil War, there were tenuous um, allowances. Let me give you an example from Jackson, Mississippi, where I am. Um, the the oldest African American congregation in Jackson is the Mount Helm. Baptist Church, and it's actually named after a deacon from First Presbyterian Church, Jackson. Now, you say, why is the oldest African-American Baptist Church in Jackson, Mississippi, named after a deacon 
from First Presbyterian Church, Jackson. I'm glad you asked that question, Justin. Here's the story. The, the, or, just, you know, the problem with this is that Jim's a Reformed Baptist, so he's going to take some type of glory. <laughs> so don't give him more ammunition, but go ahead. <laughs> the, um, the, the African members of the, uh, of the First Baptist Church in Jackson worshipped in the basement of First Baptist Jackson. After the Emancipation Proclamation, the deacons of First Baptist Church asked them no longer to meet there anymore. So they had nowhere to go. Apparently, a number of them were in the employment of Mr. Helm, who was a, a deacon at First Pres. And of course, in those days, First Pres, First Baptist, First Methodist, uh, the Catholic Church, they were all right next to one another in downtown Jackson. And Mr. Helm had a plot of land a few blocks away and he gave them the material and the land to build a, a black Baptist church for themselves. That's a picture, Justin, of the way that this happened everywhere. You know, we could tell the story of the African Methodist Episcopalian Church. We could tell the story of the black Baptist churches, which became things like the National Baptist Church or the Missionary Baptist Church. Uh, we could tell the story of the Methodist churches, and so, but it'd all be the same thing. Essentially, blacks were tolerated in a limited way. You know, very often they would have to sit in the galleries or sit around the edges of the rooms and such. They wouldn't be allowed to occupy the same pews that were occupied by uh, the white people in the congregation. And, and then after the war, there was just less tolerance for even allowing blacks to be around. Now, interesting, at First Press Jackson, I noticed, because I went back and looked at the roles, there were white and colored roles at First Pres Jackson into the 1880s or 90s. So now what happens is the colored roles get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller um, until they eventually die out. Um, so in some churches, black Presbyterians and white Presbyterians continue to work worship together. But in most places there's a separation. And by the way, there's a big argument about this. You'll know this as a historian. There's a big argument about this in the Southern Presbyterian Church at the Columbus General Assembly. I think it was in 1878, Columbus, Mississippi, General Assembly of the Southern Presbyterian Church. There's a huge debate over whether you can have black and white Presbyterians together. And the only, the only voice at the Columbus General Assembly speaking for a united black and white Southern Presbyterian denomination was John Lafayette Gerardo. And Gerardo was of Huguenot descent. He pastored a 1,200-member, almost all-black church in Charleston, South Carolina, where the white folks sat in the balcony and the, and, and the black folks occupied the main floor of the, of the hall. And, war, and, and Gerardo said, you're making a huge mistake. But of course, that you know that that happens, and there's there's segregation at the at the church level. That happens in all the denominations, Justin. It just happens at different times. You know, the the Episcopalian split at different times, the Baptist split at different times, the Presbyterian split at different times. But it happens in almost all the Protestant denominations. It was fascinating. Just so, just from my tradition, the Anglican tradition, even the role of suffragan bishop. There's a diocesan bishop who's the pastoral authority for a region, and then there's an assistant bishop, but there's also a category for a suffragan bishop who is a, a bishop whose uh, role lasts longer than the diocesan if they stay there. Well, that role was actually mm. created and useful regarding 
um, black leaders in the church, trying to make sure there was a role for leadership at the highest level, but also was at the same time problematic in uh, how it was misused to actually cap uh, how far a black leader could go. So every, that's what's so helpful, every denomination has a role of how this was influenced in polity and theology and just social realities. Yeah. Well, as uh, I am of Huguenot descent, so I appreciate that story. I did not know that. I've been to Columbus, Mississippi. Um, so thanks for that. I, I, but another part of my my background, it wasn't uncommon uh, growing up to, to hear the Civil War referred to as the War of Northern Aggression. And so that, that comes from a deep-seated debate as to what was the purpose, the fundamental purpose of the war. Was it states' rights or was it slavery? How do you process that that argument? Well, look, I'm, I'm sympathetic to folks who say that, Jim, because I, 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 I was born and reared on that. You know, that, that's what's called the lost cause. Um, it was a it was a twisting of history that was begun almost immediately after the war was over. Um, you know, I, I, I was I was taught it from the time that I was a child um, in a milder form, probably than it would have been taught in the 19 teens or the 1950s. But nevertheless, there um, it ignores a lot of indisputable historical realities uh, you know, sometimes you'll you'll hear people say um, the 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 American Civil War was really about states' rights. Yeah, well, states' rights to to chattel slavery. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's that it's 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 in almost all the ordinances of secession in the South. Um, you look at the South Carolina Ordinance of Secession. You look at the Mississippi Ordinance of Secession. You look at the Texas Ordinance of Secession. It's all there. Uh, and it'll explicitly say, you know, we're fighting this war over slavery. And so, it, it, look, that, here, here's the thing. That, that was deliberately hidden from generations of Southerners because, look, I, you know, pe- people will often, Justin will understand this, people will often talk about when you're in Eastern societies, ah, this is an honor-shame culture. And you Westerners wouldn't understand an honor-shame culture. And I laugh because I was reared in an honor-shame culture. If, if, there, if the southern United States is anything, it is an honor-shame culture. And in an honor-shame culture, you dishonor somebody publicly, he'll kill you. And um, the, the depth of shame that was, that was uh, sort of uh, accrued to the hearts of Southerners after the loss of the war was psychologically, I mean, it it just left a pathological effect on the entire culture. And the way that Southerners chose to deal with that was through denying and and through rewriting history. And and boy, is that not a picture? You know, we, we we can see that play out in individual people's lives. That can happen in a culture's life. And the entire culture of the South created a fiction in order to cope with the sense of shame uh, that was entailed in in uh, the the loss of the war and all of the things that that involved, and so you know, I, I'm sympathetic, Jim, when when people want to argue with me about that because I've heard it all myself. Um, 
Well, I I, appre- I really appreciate the way you're connecting it with honor shame. I've lived 15 years in honor shame cultures, five in Italy, 10 in Mississippi, uh, which was a culture I loved. But I mean, that, that connection is a really helpful one to, to make. And just in case anybody's wanting to argue with you, I just, I just want to read, I have the articles of secession here. Mississippi's position, again, family there, love it, but just to, so everybody knows you're, you're not just making this up. Mississippi's position, and I quote, is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest of the world, its labor supplies, the product which constitutes by far the largest and most important portions of commerce to the earth. So it's, in Texas, I believe, mentions it 21 times in theirs. And by the way, the Mississippi secession statement, Jim, actually goes on to address explicitly the issue of the social equality of black people and to deny the social equality of black people. So it it even provides for you the white supremacist undergirding of the institution of slavery in the ordinance of secession. It's right there. Well, and there, there, there are two really important pre-Civil War legal rulings that we, we can't finish the episode without, without addressing. Would you mind explaining um, you know, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 and the Dred Scott versus Sanford? Well, you know, the, as the Supreme Court is trying to, to navigate the issue of you've got a country where part of the, part of the country is free, part of the country has slavery— there have been growing tensions for 30 years. Uh, you know, we, we end, ostensibly, we end the slave trade in the early 19th century, although it continues to trickle on. I don't know whether you uh, noticed that just a few years ago, we found what we think is the wreckage of the last slave ship that came to the United States. And it, it's, I mean, it's well into the 19th century, long after after the trade is officially legal, uh, illegal slaves are still being brought in. But even after the slave trade ends, you've got this massive population of slaves in the South, and you have this tremendous concern by those in power in the South that any kind of erosion or, or capping of slavery in our culture is eventually going to lead to the ending of slavery and the upheaval of the economic system. And so you have these battles over... Um, you know, on what basis are, are states admitted to the country and such. And so the, the, the Supreme Court gets caught up in, in, in legal stuff like that. And with both Dred Scott and the Fugitive Slave Act, you know, the, the question is, you know, what, what, what happens when a fugitive slave gets to a free state? That what, do the rights of the master end at that time or does there have to be a return? Dred Scott is dealing with the same kind of thing. And the Supreme Court initially sides with the rights of Southern masters. Now, at the same time, in in governmental politics, you have this rise of this Illinois senator who's very openly against slavery. And and what happens from the eighteen from eighteen fifty to eighteen sixty is even though the Supreme Court is ruling in the favor of Southerners. You've got an executive branch of the of, of the government that is becoming more aggressively. Uh, abolitionist. And, you know, the Southerners warn, if you elect this guy, we're going to secede. And sadly, my state, Jim, led the way in that. You'll get a kick out of this. When I came to Mississippi in 1990, uh, one person said to me, hey, uh, Ligon, you're coming here from way up north. 
And I said, I'm from South Carolina, for crying out loud. We started the war. What do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean we're from way up north? <laughs> These hot-headed South Carolinians. Uh, and by the way, we fired the first shot. You know, it was Citadel cadets that fired on Fort Sumter. It was, you know, when you, when you hear somebody say the war of northern aggression, we fired the first shot. South Carolinian Citadel cadets fired on Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor. And so you have those two things going on. You have a Supreme Court initially on the wrong side of this issue, but then you have the executive branch changing, and it's that turmoil that leads into the war. Well, I can appreciate that transition. I moved from the foreign country of Italy to the foreign country, to me, of Mississippi. And, uh, and when, I, when I first met my wife's family, my wife's from New Albany, Mississippi, right down the street from Oxford, and uh, her, her, somebody in her family said, Jim seems like a great guy, but his northern accent is so strong. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you've heard a northern accent before. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, here's how I want to land the plane. Would you mind? You've you've alluded to your own personal journey in this, and that that's that that I think makes your voice so especially important. Um, would you mind kind of just telling us a little bit more about that personal journey and some of the really important pieces to take you from what you said you grew up hearing to where you are now? Well, boy, that's hard. It's hard to kind of put all of that together. Um, and, and if I were to give a short version of this, um, I would say, first of all, I, I, I'm clueless about this for the first 30 years of my life. Um, I, I, you know, I, if, if you had asked me, are you a racist? I would have been oh, emphatically, no, I'm not, I'm not a racist. Because in, 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 when I grew up in the South from in the 1960s and 70s, people that were racist were people that were still in the Klan. Uh, you know, they, they were extremists. They were fringe. And uh, and so what a lot of people, and by the way, people still use the term that way. This Usually what they mean is I'm not a racist, which means I don't have racial animus towards another person or I don't have racial animus towards black people. Therefore, I'm not a racist. So I, I would have been uh, I would have been brought up in a, a, a society where there would have been contempt for people like the Klan. Uh, they, they would be viewed as fringy, as uncouth, uh, as uh, as bad elements in society, uh, and 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 that would be looked down upon. Um, but then there would have been relative unconcern of, about the status of black people in Greenville, South Carolina. I, mean, I grew up in the town where Jesse Jackson grew up. Jesse Jackson's older than I am but I know exactly where he grew up. He grew up in a poor section of Greenville called Nickeltown. And uh, I would have been oblivious to that socially and culturally and every other way. When I went to Scotland, one of my professors there was a man named Donald McLeod, and he was the first um, theologically conservative reformed Presbyterian that I had ever heard critique racism and apartheid. I'd never heard a criticism of slavery, racism, apartheid, et cetera. Now, interestingly, when I got to Edinburgh in 1987, they had just renamed the student center at the University of Edinburgh um, uh, after uh, the, the famous um, South African civil rights activist who 
eventually became the president of the country after he was freed, Nelson Mandela. So the, the student center was the Nelson Mandela Student Center. But he, here I am, I'm, I'm 26, 27 years old, and I've never paid attention to the issue of apartheid in South Africa. Now, think about that. You know, so that I, I'm just I'm, I'm telling you how clueless I am on on this. I'm just oblivious. Then I come back to the United States. I come straight from Scotland to Jackson, Mississippi to teach um, at, at RTS in Jackson. And the very first course that Luther Whitlock assigns me to teach is pastoral and social ethics. And uh, so I'm, you know, I'm getting my syllabus together. And by the way, I've told John Frame, John Frame, I'm so thankful for the mimeographed copies of the doctrine of the Christian life, because I would not have made it through eight hours a day for a week without (laughs) your notes, you know? So uh, John Frame really did me a solid one there uh, with, with those, uh, with those notes. But, you know, I'm thinking about what social ethical issues am I going to touch on? Well, I'm going to touch on abortion and I'm going to touch on uh, birth control and that whole range of, you know, uh, you know, sexual rights and such. I'm going to, touch on marriage. I'm going to touch on just war. You know, I go down the the standard list of things. Does it occur to me in Jackson, Mississippi in 1990 to include racism as something that I might possibly want to consider with a class full of ministers, many of whom are going to go into churches that do not allow black people to join? It does not occur to me, Jim, to, to, to address racism. So, you know, I, I, I want to emphasize this this does not arise from some sort of animus against black people. It's from utter, complete, culpable ignorance and indifference. And that's I think that's far more harmful in the if you look at the late 20th century in our sort of conservative theological circles, that kind of culpable ignorance and indifference has been far more harmful than any kind of active animus has been on these sorts of things. So I'm, I'm clueless about this. What happens? People, Jim, people. I mean, Heron Wilson was one of my first students in Jackson. Heron's from Shaw, Mississippi, pastors a uh, missionary Baptist church up there, preached B.B. King's funeral. Um, and and I, I meet Heron, and he, you know, I realized this guy, if we had grown up together and we had had the same skin color, we would have been best buddies. And yet he is from a world and an experience that I don't know. But I immediately loved Heron. Uh, and Heron, in his kindness, loved me back. And it's just, it starts with friendships, Jim. You know, guys like Heron, guys like Mac McCarty, who, uh, who, who, by the way, is just retiring this summer after working for uh, RTS for 30-something years. And um, Jerry Young, and, you know, and then meeting guys like Thabiti Anyabwile, and, and just having friendships with guys that believe like me. I mean, they, we, we're committed to the same Bible, to the same gospel, to the same theology, but from totally different experiences of life. And that starts changing me. A couple, I'm probably going too long, Jim, and so you just give me the sign to shut up, Ligon, you know. Uh, but a couple of stories in talking with Thabiti, for instance. Thabiti and I have sons that are the same age now. Titus uh, and Jennings are at the same age. And Thabiti and his family moved back from the Cayman Islands to Washington, D.C. to plant a church in Anacostia, in the Anacostia area of D.C., right at the time that Mike Brown is shot in Ferguson. 
Okay. So six years ago. And uh, th- that was, th- that was a, uh, just it was turmoil for Thabiti's heart at multiple levels when when all of that happens, and one of it, one part of that is just how it relates to Titus. One day Titus is getting ready; he's going out of the house. He throws his hoodie on. He's getting ready to walk out of the house. His daddy grabs him by the arm and he says, "Titus, take the hoodie off." And you know why, Dad? And he said, "Titus, you're big." And by the Titus and Jennings are both big; they're both tall boys. And, um, and, but Jennings is a pale skinned redheaded boy. And, and Titus is, is a big, tall African American young man. And, um, and Thabiti says to him, Titus, you're big and you're going to scare somebody with that hoodie. And I'm afraid that somebody will kill you. And I realized, Jim, I'll never have that conversation with Jennings. I'll never have that conversation with him. He, you know, my, my, my black friends come from an entirely different world of experiences than I do. I've, I've had numerous RTS black students stopped by the police for driving while black. <laughs> I have never been stopped by the police for driving while white. So, you know, I, one thing is in the context of friendships, Jim, I just realize there's an experience of life that I've never had before. Then the, uh, another story is Titus is in his school class for the first day in D.C., and he comes home and he says to his dad, hey, dad, am I an African-American? And it's kind of like Genesis 3. The BD says, who told you that? Um, and and <laughs> Titus said, um, well, I mean, my teacher did. Uh, my teacher said I was an African-American. And I thought what Thabiti said was really wise. He said, well, son, what do you think you are? And he said, well, dad, I just, I just thought I was an American. Now, that makes perfect sense from the Cayman Islands, right? Because when you're in Grand Cayman, you've got like 23 different nationalities in the congregation. And so Thabiti and his family, they're the Americans, you know, as opposed to the Jamaicans or the Haitians or the Dominicans, you know, or whatever else it is there in Cayman from all sorts of places all over the Caribbean world. They're just the Americans. But when Titus gets here, he's no longer an American. He's an African-American. And suddenly I realized my son will never have that identity question asked to him. So a lot of it, Jim, is just having good friendships with people with totally different experiences life than me. And that starts in Scotland, but boy, does it really start coming home to me when I'm in the Southeastern United States. And then that, what that does is it starts pushing me to learn. And I I just realized I have no excuse as a trained historian for not knowing these things, but I don't know these things. And so I just have to start, I just have to start reading. And, you know, that's, it's been a 30 year process, Jim. I'm not there yet. I've got a lot to learn. Uh, but that's what really starts it is friendships with godly Christians with whom I share a complete commitment to the gospel and to the Bible and even to reform theology, but where we have totally different experiences in life. And um, so that's, I, th- I think that's my story, Jim. That's, I, I so appreciate the emphasis on relationships. Um, one of those important people to me was our mutual friend, Anthony Forrest. Um, came from Grace Bible Church, went to RTS, you taught him, 
And, uh, but, and, and there are many others I could add to that, but I really appreciate it. We appreciate your time, uh, your voice on this, and, uh, and really look forward to talking with you in the future about um, the, next, uh, the next era, the Civil War, to the Civil Rights Movement, because I could make an argument that that is the least known and one of the most important eras um, th- that has directly informed uh, where we are today. So thank you, Dr. Duncan. Looking forward uh, to more time with you in the future. Thank you, my friend. For more interviews, resources, and discussion questions based on the content you've heard, go to asinheaven.com. That's A-S-I-N-H-V-N.com. If you liked this episode, please take a second to give us a five-star rating on iTunes, which you can do right from the Apple Podcasts app if you're listening there, or take a second to share it with a friend. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.